This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 31 of the podcast. And I think apologies are in order because I'm very sorry to say, folks, this might be the shortest Rotto talks through on record because, well, it's, a, it's an unfortunate confluence of timings. Basically, it's first of all, it's the end of the year. And so there's always very, very few games being announced that are coming out of nowhere all of a sudden um, because, of course... Everybody's ramping up for next year. And so, my first normal segment of the podcast, Games of Interest, Upcoming Games of Interest, I got nothing to talk about. Now, that's in large part because I just talked about 50 bajillion games in last month's podcast, the Essen Preview. And when I sat down to look, hey, have there been any new ones I found? I have to say no, with the exception of stuff for next year. And so, the first segment, the Games of Interest, that's going to be right out. Although, don't worry, Games of Interest fan, next month is going to be a big blowout for everything of interest that's coming in 2018. So, you'll be hearing about new games in due course. So, my second topic I normally cover is revisiting recent top 10s. And because of the mad dash leading up to Essen Spiel, and the fact that Jen is now having to take off for a, a little while in December, I am behind on my top 10s. I need to do top 10s bridesmaids and top 10 gateways revisited. I've yet to film either of those. So, normally I would have done that by now, but uh, because of the craziness that's going on at the moment, I don't have them and therefore I can't revisit them. So my normal second segment is right out the window as well, which leaves us with Q&A. And fortunately, folks have submitted some questions which we will be answering. And that's going to be it for this month. And like I said, next month is going to be a big 2018 preview extravaganza kind of thing. But for now, it's just going to be me and Jen letting folks know what they'd like to know. And that's going to start right after this. Okay, everybody, it's time once again for monthly questions and answers with me and Jen. Hello. Hi, honey pie. Jen is getting ready to rush off to jolly old England once again. How many weeks will you have been out of the country this year after you get back from this emergency house repair um, it's about three thing? Months. About three months. You will have spent three months of 2017 out of the house. Away from you. So sad and only. I know. And no puppies for me either. I know. It's been rough. Uh, hopefully you will decide to maybe stay with us in 2018. <laughs> have you more time hope. next year? Yes. Uh, we, we're all hopeful. I'm considering it. But anyway, folks, if you have any questions, as always, please feel free to send them to questions at rotto.com. And here we go. 
First, we'll be doing the game-related stuff. And then, for people who don't care about Jen's in my personal life, although we just did a little bit of personal life a bit there. <laughs> Sorry about that. For folks who don't care about such things, at the end, we'll do the personal Q&A. So, starting with the game stuff, Adrian asked, In my last podcast, I mentioned that I'd played Seven Wonders and Small World during lunch at my old job, Splash Damage in Bromley. What other lunchtime games did we play? Well, yeah, it was definitely, oh my gosh, so much Seven Wonders. I have played Seven Wonders at every player count to death. We played that a lot. We all got that thing down to a science. And yes, Small World. Oh my gosh, so much Small World. Those were definitely the two main ones. We also played a lot of Mansions of Madness. They played a bunch of Pandemic, which I totally missed out on. I was always kind of bummed about that. Um, you can yeah, play I think Pandemic ma- at work? Uh-huh. Well, no. They were I they'd been playing Pandemic for like a half year and I had no idea because I always just worked through lunch and I didn't know there was this like board game group and it was only after that was the year that we did our trip to France and discovered Pandemic mm. and I came back and I was talking about it and I was tweeting about it while we were on the road and stuff and like yeah we've been playing Pandemic for 6 months where have you been oh. I said I've been working chumps why did you invite me um, but by that point, they were kind of burned out on Pandemic, and so I, I missed that whole window, unfortunately, very sadly. But yeah, we did a lot of Mansions of Madness. Um, there was a couple of guys who really liked Chaos in the Old World, although I only ever played that once, and that was enough for me. And uh, we did Cyclades, and somebody brought in, not Munchkin, but one of the Munchkin-esque type games. Or no, maybe it was a Munchkin. No, it wasn't. It was... It was something else from Steve Jackson Games. We did that once. Uh, I think we did a couple of games to say anything. But, yeah, it was mostly just tons and tons and tons and tons of Small World and uh, uh, Seven Wonders because we could get an entire game from start to finish in a single hour. I know we did one game of Agricola, and that took like three lunch times, so we all liked it, but we were never going to do that again. We did Carson City a couple of times, I think. A few others, but it was almost all Seven Wonders in Small World. Oh, man, I, I, uh, so much, so much. But uh, that was Adrian's question. Then Trey wonders, given my high rank of Twa, my BGG game, if you go to ranked.rado.com, you'll see it's in my top 10 of all time. Trey was surprised that it's not mentioned, I didn't mention it, in my most played games top 10. Has my opinion changed over time? Or uh, is this like Castles of Burgundy? Great game, you still love, but you have not gotten that many hours into. It would definitely be the latter. I think Jen and I both love Twa. Do you remember which one Twa is, honey? Twa is the one where you roll a bunch of dice, they all go into the middle, you've got yours, but I could end up buying yours yep. from you, and, yeah. and you, every, at the beginning of every round you have to fight off the invaders, and you're yep. building up the city. And all. Yeah, Jen remembers it. I mean, it has such a strong impression on us that Jen actually remembers it. That's saying something, because we probably haven't played it for at least three years. Yeah. I think, yeah, we played it a couple of times when Ladies of Twa came out, so I could do a run for, for that, and then I haven't played it since. And yeah. Uh, it's, it ranks that high because it's that good. And I wish we got to play it more, but you know, unless there's another expansion that comes out for it, it's just going to continue gathering dust because I'm constantly filming new things. And it's one of those games that... 
Well, again, it would probably would have gotten more plays, except its timing was a bit off. When we first got into board games, we were still living in England, and I was still working full-time. We only had a small handful of games, and they got played a lot. But after we moved to mm-hmm. Malta and I started doing Rotter Runs Through full-time, now we don't play games a lot at all. What? Or, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't repeat games. We don't repeat games. We so, play games all the time. We do. Yes, we do. We played two today so far. Yeah. Uh, and what, we played four yesterday, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, Twa... We discovered it right at the tail end of those golden years in England where, yeah, we only owned like 20 games. And, uh, you know, that's back when we played Agricola 50 times over the space of a year and stuff like that. So Twa kind of came in. We immediately fell in love with it. It's still, I mean, my top 10 doesn't shift hardly at all because it's not a reflection of just my current flavor of the month. It's a reflection of what I think are the best games of all time. And it's going to be tough for something to knock out Twa. It's just that good. But anyway, that's the case. We would happily play it every week for a year, I'm sure, um, and not get burned out on it. It's just so good. But that's not in the cards for us. Let's move on to Alejandro, who wonders... He knows at the beginning of the year that one of my games of interest... All right. Oh, a few questions for you. I know at the beginning of the year, this was one of your games of interest. And finally, the rulebook is available. I'm a big fan of Kramer Kiesling. I've been intrigued for a while to know more about this game. Have you had a look at the rules? What is your opinion? Okay, Alejandro, here's the problem. You literally don't mention the name of the game. (laughs) Oopsie. (laughs) Oopsie do. It's not in the title. No, he he says Kramer and Kiesling. Well, yes, so I I could take a guess... Based on the fact that it's a Kramer and Kiesling. Let's see, Kiesling has just, a few. We just Kramer and Kiesling. Kiesling. What's that? We just played a Kiesling we did. yesterday, wasn't it? What? No, we haven't played Riverboat yet. We have played ReWorld, which is, I think that's the, the Kramer slash Kiesling game this year. And we've actually played it. Um, that was the, remember the game we played at Carthix before we came back? Yeah. The spaceship, pack it up and then unpack it on the planet? And we were drafting and getting the modules. Yep. If Alejandro, if you're thinking about ReWorld, yes, we have played it. Liked it a lot. Thought it was really, really great. To be honest, my only complaint, which I will talk about whenever I do a run-through for it, I really didn't like how all of the different scoring objectives are going to be available in every single game. I think, one, that's a bit overwhelming because you feel like, oh, i got to do everything, and you can't do everything, and you really should focus on one or two things. But just like all this stuff is out here, I think they really missed a trick. It would have been so much better if, I don't know, maybe based on player count, maybe at full player count, all the objectives are there every time. But at half... At two players, only half of the objectives should show up. So that, hey, you know what? This time we play, this particular module is not particularly exciting. But show, uh, you know, I'm less enticed to go on ahead and draft for it and whatnot. Plus, I'm also not crazy about the fact, I think, I haven't played as a two-player, but I don't think they do any scaling. So at the end of the game in a two-player game, Jen, we'll have to try this before I do the run-through, we'll end up with as many modules collected and deployed as would happen in a four-player game, and I think that's not going to feel very good either. I'm not sure. We really liked it. We really enjoyed it, but I, we need to play a little bit more to have final thoughts on it, if, in fact, that's what you're talking about. But that's a guess. But let's move on to your second one, where you did mention the name of the game, <laughs> Feast for Odin. Oh, Alejandro Odin. bought it recently. Uh, it was some hesitation, as it was his first big Uve game. He enjoyed watching the video. 
helped him get a good idea of the game flow. Played it a couple of times. Oh, okay. And I also feel that the randomness of both weapon occupation cards is not perfect and requires a bit of improvement. Yet, at the same time, based on all the content of this game, the appendix, the almanac, uh, explaining the rationale, the thematic rationale, it seems there's a lot of love and devotion put into this game. So part of me finds it hard to believe that Uwe would not take into account the possible, quote, flaw, end quote, of the randomness of card draws. So far, I find the occupation draw a bit more frustrating than the weapon draw. The randomness of the weapons just leads you to adapt, take different actions, uh, or even if you don't get the weapon you need, other resources help perform that action. All right. Thus, I was wondering, have you played this anymore and come up with any rule to make it better? Ho, 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 Honey, have we played that game anymore? The answer to that question would be no, no matter what game it is. So no, Alejandro, I have not played Feast for Odin again since I filmed the run-through for it because it's been a year since that time, and I have, in the meantime, played and filmed 200 other games, give or take. So no, I, we haven't revisited it. I remember I watched a little bit of a live playthrough that Heavy Cardboard did, and they showed a variant that they have developed for themselves. If I recall correctly, I think it was, I think it was that there's a display of like four or five weapon cards. When you take a weapon, you get to choose the one you want. It was something like that. I don't remember, but I remember thinking at the time, yeah, if I ever play again, I'll just do that. So I would recommend seeking out the official or the unofficial Heavy Cardboard a variant. That's what I would do. Is it a flaw? No, I don't think it's a flaw. And I'm pretty sure I didn't say it was a flaw in my run-through. I just said it was something that we did not care for. It was a flaw only for our particular expression. Uwe talks about this in the rules. He said, yeah, we, look, I know it adds some randomness, but randomness is fun. It gives a little bit of zest. I can't deny that. Doesn't mean I like it. I don't. Um, I know when I posted my original run-through, a lot of people said, no, it's fine, Rado. You're a flaming idiot. <laughs> Shut your, ma- your Odin Final. hole. Um, oh. and, uh, but yeah, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants. And in that game, the heart does not want to be stuck with yet another round of harpoons. And I don't need harpoons. And I can do nothing with harpoons. And I'm not going to change my entire strategy while Jen, round after round after round after round, gets the exact tool she needs based on total and complete random luck. And yes, that in and of itself won't win the game, but it can definitely... Anyway, sorry. I would respectfully disagree with Uwe. If I ever met the man in real life, I'd love to sit down and talk to him about his reasoning and what his preferred way to remove that randomness would be. But, eh, say la vie. Anyway, Alejandro, uh, he goes on. You've got a couple of different suggestions for how to do it. Um, post those on Board Game Geek. I'm sure you will find you're not alone, Alejandro. But I'm not a good springboard because, like I said, I haven't played the game for a year, sadly. Which was too because it was a really good game. Or maybe not a year. Maybe, yeah, I don't remember when we did But since I did the run-through, I haven't played it since. Last question for me and for Jen. Okay. Alejandro, honey, plans to go with his girlfriend to his first gaming convention next year. And one of his best friends attends Gen... Oh, you're, you've never been to Gen Con. You won't be able to answer this. Jen's going to go back to the internet now. Um, best friends attends Gen Con every year and keeps insisting that that's where Alejandro should go. I very much enjoy going to that, but I don't know. Uh, it'd be too much to handle for my girlfriend. I'm the most avid gamer for both of us. She plays games with me, and I read the rules and teach her the games, but it's not her hobby. Would you and Jen recommend going to this one, or could it be too overwhelming? 
The other possibility would be Board Game Geek in Dallas, held every year. But that also worries me, both being very large conventions. Okay, Honey Pie, so you've never been to Gen Con, mm-hmm. but just uh, remove Gen Con and put in Essence Spiel. Right. Too much. So, too much? Way for a little. casual, at best, gamer? Well, the first year we went, we were casual gamers, weren't we? And I was overwhelmed in extremis. Uh, and not in a good way? Well, I, it was just it was just way too much. Mm-hmm. I was impressed by the breadth and the depth. Uh, I mean, there was all sorts of stuff there, which was a lot of fun to look at. But no, it was exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> so I heard though that the other like BGG is more of a players um, convention rather than a selling convention. Yep. So that might probably be a better one. Yeah. Well, Alejandro, maybe you didn't know this, but I have actually done a full run through of Gen Con and Board Game Geek Con, and I think I hope. I did a pretty good job of, you know, really kind of capturing the essence and feel of what these experiences are like. And so you could go check those out, and they should give you a pretty good idea. I mean, it's filmed from first person, so you can just imagine yourself walking around and experiencing it and decide for yourself if it would be a good fit for your girlfriend. Because I've never met the lady. I'm sure she's lovely, but you'd probably be better suited to judge it than me. Although, as Jen said, I mean, Board Game Geek Con has a very small retail element to it. I guess it's bigger. I think maybe there's it's gotten a bit bigger since I filmed it a couple of years ago. But just watch my run-through and decide for yourself if it looks like fun. It should be fine. I just have to wonder, in all honesty, I'm not quite sure why anybody wants to go to a convention. I mean, if you're playing your games at home and you've got people you love and you enjoy playing games with, why travel halfway across the country or even halfway around the world to do the same thing? Except now it's also with some strangers. i I mean, surely there's strangers wherever you live, Alejandro, <laughs> that you could play with, and you'd save a lot of money by not flying all the way over there. But it could be a whole holiday, and they build a whole thing around it. Well, sure. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. I, I would agree with that. But to fly from, let's see, Alejandro, I don't know if you're in, you didn't say where you're from. I'm going to assume you're in Europe, but heck, maybe you're in South America. I don't know. But even from Europe or South America to Texas is going to be a real pain. And chances are, Alejandro... Wherever you are in the world, which I don't think you said, uh, right at the same time you weren't mentioning what Kramer and Kiesling game you were interested in, <laughs> um, I bet you anything there is a much more reasonably sized and approachable convention within five hours of where you are. Anywhere in the world, except for Antarctica. <laughs> um, and maybe you should just start with whatever one that one is. Uh, but instead of just jumping right yeah, into the deep are, end of the pool. There are a lot of really great local That's what I'm saying, yeah. Ones. Yep. Okay. I, that's what I would think. Yeah, I would unless think. you were already, unless you wanted to make a big old month long. Hey, let's go to the states and really experience everything the states has to offer. I mean, there's no other reason to go to Dallas, really. <laughs> but um, I mean, stay there for. I mean, that would be the only reason I would think to do that personally, having been there. Um, right. Moving on to Michael. Let's see. Michael would love my thoughts. Basically, ah. All right, the couple that he played through Pandemic Legacy Season 1 with, he and his wife played through the game with this couple, they've moved 2,000 miles away. So now, what to do with Season 2? There are new folks who play games with us, and they would certainly enjoy it. But do we go through Season 1 again with the new folks, or do we just jump right into Season 2? You totally play Season 1 again with the new folks, because it's awesome! (laughs) We did that. Uh, yes, we did. We didn't have to because uh, we played Season 1 and Season 2 by ourselves, so we didn't have the problem you have. But we still played Season 1 a second time with a couple of friends and had a great time with it. Um, 
You certainly don't have to. Pre-knowledge of season one is not required to be able to play season two successfully. However, full knowledge of the events of season one definitely enhances the enjoyment of season two. Yeah. And while when you hit certain milestones in season two, you could then say to your new friends, oh, well, if you played season one, this is a reference to that. And remember, honey, when this happened, I bet that's what this means and blah, blah, blah you'll really be leaving them out of the loop. And I, I, they will not be able to enjoy it as much. So, yeah, I, I think I'd be inclined to agree with Jen. Unless they, unless they say right in front... Look, we don't... We're, we're, I mean, maybe they're the type of gamers who literally don't care about narrative at all. We're just here to play the game and solve the mechanisms and be as efficient as possible. We don't care about the story bits. If they don't care about the story bits, sure. Just jump right into two. But if they have any narrative leanings at all they would get more out of two if they had experienced one themselves. All righty. And Jen, I can say that, having just yesterday finished season two. Okay, which uh, means I'll be doing a video for it probably next week, or maybe the week after, depending. Anyway, moving on. Eric is very excited to hear that the North Sea Trilogy will be getting wider release in December, but he only has a limited amount of shelf space. And tries not to purchase too many game, too many of the same things. So Tikal and Explorers of the North Sea have much in common. Both action point allowance games. Flip and explore hexagonal tiles. And set collection and area control. Are they similar enough to justify owning both? Hmm. And if so, is there... I assume you mean if not. Is there one that's superior to the other? Well, there's no two ways about it. I mean... No offense to um, Shem Phillips, the designer of the North Seas trilogy, but Tikal is the objectively, I think, better game. I mean, it's deeper, it's richer, it has a lot more going on. Uh, North Sea, was it Raiders of the North Sea, is a very super lightweight family gateway game, whereas Tikal is not. Tikal I mean, it, you will burn your brain there. You know, as the game goes on, um, some of those final turns you're trying to eke out the uh, last few points, figuring out how to spend those 10 action points, it can really, really set your brain on fire in a good way. Now, that said, Tikal is super prone to analysis paralysis. So if that's a problem for you at all, I mean, be, uh, you know, Raiders can have it a little bit, but not too terribly much because it is so light and family-friendly and gateway-ish. So, you know, that is an issue that I think is definitely prevalent for Tikal. Also, out of the box, Raiders is a better two-player game because Tikal, without the mini Tikal variant that I demoed in my run-through of Tikal, I would say it's not a very good two-player game at all. Whereas Raiders works fine, I think, at any player count, whereas Tikal, by default, you'd want it at higher player count. Tikal is much, much longer. Raiders is much shorter. Raiders is much lighter and more breezy. It's got cute little animals and stuff. So I could certainly, if you like the gameplay, I could certainly see an argument to own both because, hey, sometimes I like this action point traveling around, revealing tiles, and doing area control stuff. And sometimes I want a really light version of it. Sometimes I want a heavy version of it, depending on who I'm playing with or depending on whether I'm kind of tired and want a quick game or a really long, heavy, epic game and I want to burn my brain on it. So I can see owning both, particularly if you like it a lot. But I could certainly... I think there are enough differences to make one or the other 
replace the other. You know, to have one kill the other. As for which is which, that would be up to you. I've done run-throughs for both. Check them out. Okie doke. Moving on to John. Do you have, or do I have any advice, Honey Pie? John wants to know, do we have any advice for dealing with players who suffer from too much analysis paralysis? Oh, dear. Further. I wouldn't know anybody who does that. <laughs> is it possible to unlearn these tendencies? And are there any games that we would recommend that they play or not play with this player? Hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> well. You're talking to the lady of analysis. Yes. Analysis. Jen, um, Jen loves to analyze. Jen will happily sit for five minutes thinking about, and that's not an exaggeration, on a really mm -hmm. crunchy game. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's when she's having the absolute most fun. Yep. Trying to squeeze every little ducat out of every little cube she can with her remaining action points and her worker placements and whatever it might be. And her card draftings and all of that. So Jen loves it. And in all, it used to be a problem for us. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a slow player, but I'm nothing like Jen. I've I, I played with other people who say I'm analysis paralysis prone. And I know people would think I'm that way from the run-throughs <laughs> I do. But you got to bear in mind, the run-throughs are not truly reflective because I'm playing for multiple players at once. I'm considering strategy, but I'm also considering how to best demonstrate the game and stuff like that. There's a lot more. It is much harder to do a run-through of a game than to actually play a game, in my personal experience anyway. So I guess I'm a bit AP-prone, and Jen is very AP-prone. So, and I know that's probably, for Jen, one of the problems she has with playing with more players. Yeah, because then I start feeling like I'm, I'm bogging everybody down. Yeah, she doesn't mind bogging me down. Yeah, you have a laptop. Yeah, she knows. I will literally just, if, she, if she's going to be at it for a while, she'll say, you know what, I'm going to be at this for a while. Why don't you uh, go browse the interwebs? <laughs> and I literally will get up and do that. And it's fine. Yep. And, you know, that wasn't always the case. I remember in those halcyon days I was talking about earlier, before we became hardcore and we were still fairly light, I mean, at one point I experimented with downloading an app for my smartphone that's a chess timer. So you would put it on the table and, you know, it gives you a certain amount of time and you say done when your turn is done. And the quicker you do your turn, the more time you have on your subsequent turn. You know, a chess clock. That's what's called a chess clock. You can download these things easily. You could try that. And Jen, oh, it did not go over well at all because no. it just made... I don't need pressure. Right, yeah. I, it's, it's not like it helped provide her with sudden clarity of vision. <laughs> it made things worse. Yep. And she just became very frustrated. So we stopped that very quickly. It made it unfun. Yes. And, 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 like, and just you know, starting to say, she kind of has that same problem if we play a game with a group of people because she feels like, well, I, I, she, well she still enjoys it, but she doesn't get to enjoy it at the full, uh, you know, at her full level because for her it's fun to grind and grind and grind. And if she doesn't get to do that, if she just goes with, well, I don't want to take five minutes here. I've already thought about this for at least a minute. I should just go with this, and, and it'll be fine. But she just won't be having as much fun as she would be if it was just the two of us. So, you know, that's kind of a little bit of insight into I'm assuming the mind of this person you're playing with. Um, honey, yeah. would you be able to unlearn your AP tendencies? You don't have to be AP. No. You don't do it because you have to. It's not because your brain is slow. It's You do it because it's fun. Yeah, because I, I enjoy that part of the process. It's part of playing games as, 
exercising my brain that way. Exactly, yeah. So if you were to try to break them of this habit, you're maybe breaking them of having a good time. And I don't think that's what you want to do. Like I said, that's what we tried with the Chess Clock app. And I decided, no, I, you know what? Um, I'll just keep my smartphone at the table or, or what have you. So ultimately, that was our solution to just you know, incorporate it into our style of play. If that's something that you and your group can't do, then I guess it's time to start playing cooperative games. Because then, when your friend is spending forever analyzing, you know what? You all are. And you're all analyzing the same stuff working together. Or, time to start playing real-time games. Because then there is just no time to analyze nothing. Nope. Uh, so, I mean, I think you got to go for that. Otherwise, um, you know, if you care about their enjoyment of the game... I mean, that's the thing. Okay, you're either you're, they won't be enjoying the game because they don't get to have fun... Or you won't get to enjoy the game because you want to take your turn faster. You could ask them to change, or you could look inward, and maybe <laughs> you could change yourself. So that's kind of our view, I think, unless you have something to add, Honey Pie. No, I think that sums it up. Okay, no. But also, you know, it may just be that that person is not going to be compatible with you and the rest of your group. Yeah, could be. That might be, unless you change your, your game styles, like, yep. like what you just said. Yep, yep. All righty, Alicia has many questions. Mm-hmm. All righty. And, and Honey Pie, Alicia brought us chocolate-covered waffles to Essen, but she couldn't find us. Oh, my gosh. She, she, did, she, <gasps> she knew you were at a booth. She never stumbled across the booth because she just wanders around with no plan and just basically avoids crowds. Well, and you were in nice a way. very busy avenue. If she was just yeah. trying to avoid the busier avenues, I'm not surprised because... Um, Jen, at the, the NSKN booth, I mean, Jen gets a really busy thoroughfare. Yeah, it's um, awesome. So that's, that's too, we're sorry we missed you. All right. Thank you for thinking of us. Yes, thank you for thinking of us. Someday we will try your chocolate-covered Stroop waffles, which sounds insane. I know. I was just, I was just <laughs> salivating over here. Somebody mentioned the other day strawberry Stroop waffles. Oh, I'm sure that would be awesome. I don't know. Does that mean jam in the middle instead of the syrup? I don't know. I yeah, don't it's know. crazy. But anywho... Questions. Honey, what is your favorite thing about Essence Spiel? Oh, gosh. Oh. There's, there's a lot of really good stuff about it. Um, my favorite thing. <laughs> to be honest, because I, I work at Essence Spiel, I think probably my favorite thing is being done with it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because it's a lot of stress and... Um, stuff to get ready for it, and then it's yeah, just, not just the show itself, but in the weeks and months leading up. Yeah, because I, I mean, basically, it's the one my one big selling event of the year. So it's everything is is oriented towards that. So it's there's a lot of um, get ready, and then there's a lot of getting ready once you get there, um, and then once I'm there, it is it is just four days of full on um, high energy. It, meeting lovely people and having nice conversations, but it is, it's just full on. I mean, it's like, um, my lifetime's a thousand here. So, <laughs> um, I think I enjoy it while I'm there, but actually when I'm done and I think I've done a good job and, um, I can kind of pack it away for another year. I think there's a tremendous sense of relief <laughs> that I've done it. We, we made it through. We survived. Yeah. Well, particularly because of our, for the last couple of years, we've, um, stayed in, Germany until the following Wednesday because Jen wants to do only direct flights and there's only one direct flight on Wednesdays a week 
And so even though the show's over on Sunday, then we've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with nothing to do. Oh, and so all we do is just relax and play games. And that, that is probably the only three days of the year that Jen allows herself to truly, truly relax. Because as soon as she gets back here, she just immediately starts always having some low level of, you know, two on a scale of 10 stress or one on a five that just constant, nonstop. She just will not allow herself to stop being stressed. So those three days of the year after the show is over are probably the three <laughs> best days of the year for her. <laughs> yep, because actually we're staying with lovely people and we all we have lovely food. We go out and we eat. We just play games. There's just there's nothing that has to get done. Yep. It's it's yeah, it's a very carefree. I tried to convince her she could have that life all the time, but well, as soon as Jen gets back home, she must take on the reins of stress once more. No. It is in her nature. I don't want to say take on the reins of stress, but I have a lot of responsibilities and yes. I take them seriously. Mm -hmm. So, Honey Pie. Yes. What do you think needs improvement? Of, of what? Essence Spiel. Oh, gosh. More bathrooms. Yeah, I was just going to say. God, if there's it is one ridiculous. thing, it is absolutely insane. This year, for the first time, I almost as often saw big lines for the men's bathrooms as for the women's. Every year, it's always ridiculous. You know, all the way down the stairs, all the way around the corner. For the women. Yeah, for the women's rooms. But this year, I saw it happening for the men's room as well. And there were times when I'd go to the bathroom, there was a longer line at the men's and the women's. Well, that's because there's probably four times. Well, yeah, four to one or something like that. At the actual show. Um, but still, yeah, it's absolutely atrocious, abysmal. Uh, um, you know, as you know, I spend the entire time walking around, and if I really got to go. And I find, um, you know, I mean, there were times, oh, 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 there's a line there. Okay, I am not going to stand in line. I'll go to the next one. Oh, line here. Oh, a line there. Okay, fine. I got to go now, so I'll stand in this line. And it's like, come on. It's absolutely insane. I don't know what they can do because... Somebody told me that they were doing some renovations on one of the halls, so a lot of the restrooms were closed. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't notice that. Well, well I... whatever. Um, you know, hey... There's lots of space out in those um, parking lots, you know, where all the trucks are parked between the halls. Put some porta potties up. Seriously, there were plenty of times I would have used one of those this year. Yep. Happily. Yeah, it is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, this is a convention center. I mean, it's not like it's you know a hotel or something where they, you know, they have six public restrooms. This is a convention. Well, but center. they have X number of bathrooms built. I mean. And I would imagine for any other convention they hold at the Mesa for the remainder of the year, it's probably fine. Because the real problem is Essen is just way overcrowded. It's, it's not that there aren't mm -hmm. enough bathrooms. It's that there are too many people. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. Because probably most conventions don't have quite so many attendees. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. But still, I mean, yeah. So the solution for that is, you know what? Um, even this year, I think only two-thirds of the entire convention hall was used. Open it all up. Spread it all out. Um, you know, give the, uh, the convention organizers a discount so they can afford to book the entire convention center, every square inch, so that um, there are fewer people in each hall, so the crowds can get spread out more. Um, design it such so uh, instead of the way they do now where all the really hot stuff is in hall one and hall three, and so those are death traps, and then <laughs> halls two and five and six and seven are all just the little indie things. Don't do that. Make sure every hall has a few of the really big things and then a you know more even distribution of stuff. 
so that the crowds will more evenly distribute around everything. I know that's not great for the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the booth holders because they want to pay more to be right at the front door where more people will see them. But yeah, well, Honey Pie, mm. what was the most interesting non-game item you saw for sale at the fair? I see very little yeah. because basically I go and I stand in my, my spot and I stand there all day. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, there's a bathroom nearby. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I pretty much don't see anything. Yep. Yeah, it's a bit sad. Well, honey, that was oh, your perfect opportunity. Oh. No, no, no. So I guess then the coolest thing I saw at yes. the show is we did went and did the Ludi Creations um, escape room. Yeah, Ludi Creations set up a 10-minute instead of the normal hour-long escape room. And we went and did that. And that was, that was cool. That was fun. That was, that was very, very cool. nicely done. Yep. They probably, I mean, unfortunately, they made it a bit too high level because they <laughs> said after, we did not win. We did not come close to winning. And they said afterwards, yeah, only about 18% of attendees have actually successfully completed this thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, dude, come on. Don't make it that hard. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get a lot of noobs in here. But, uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. I would agree. That was probably the coolest. Although that was not for sale, but you had to pay to get in. So we'll say that that, that, that. Although Honey Pie... Wouldn't the obvious answer be the wonderful, lovely glass pieces of Jennifer Ham glass oh. were the coolest things you saw? <laughs> of Jen course they were. Jen is terrible at self-promotion. Uh, yeah, there was a, an amazing selection. Yes. And tons of meeples, too. Yep. So, um, yeah, okay, there. Alrighty. What are some examples you saw of booths and or new games doing it right? Quote, end quote. As in delivering what their target market wants making the booth and or games more appealing. Uh, I don't know. Jen couldn't answer that, and I don't think I could answer it either because you have to understand, I do not attend Essen as a regular Essen attendee. I go there with very specific um, goals in mind. I don't stand still for more than 10 seconds. I am constantly just moving from booth to booth to booth to get to meetings, to pick up games, to bring back a year's worth of games to cover. I do that nonstop. And so I don't really evaluate. I don't sit down and play hardly any games at all. What did I play at the show? I did not play from beginning to end a single game. Uh, and I only... What I... I played a couple of rounds of a couple of games, and those were only because the person I was meeting, just to pick up the review copy of whatever it was, said, hey, 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 before you rush off to your next thing, let us show you this game. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I really can't answer that, and I'm sure Jen can't either. I didn't do any games. What are some mistakes you saw amongst booths or new games? Bad setup of booth space, poorly chosen theme. I don't know. I can say the one thing that I am personally not a fan of is the Asmodee Takeover turning Essen into basically the equivalent of a video game E3-style mega event with huge, enormous Jumbotron screens. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Remember, uh, somebody told me this, honey. Remember how hot you were the first day? Oh, my God, I was dying. Yeah, a big part of that was because of those Jumbo screens, that they were producing an unexpected amount of heat, ah. apparently. Um, you know, and they eventually, you know, it wasn't bad for the rest. It wasn't because attendance went down. It's because the show organizers, I guess, cranked the AC on or opened doors or something like that. Yeah. But they, they didn't expect that. That I guess those, those huge yeah. Jumbotron screens were going to put off that much heat and just made it a cauldron throughout was, most of that first day. I mean, it must have been 95 degrees. In it the, was crazy, 90, uh, Fahrenheit. At the yeah. very least, yeah. I yep. mean, it was, we, everybody was just dripping. 
Yep, it was awful. <laughs> um, absolutely awful. Ooh. And so... So, yes, let me, let me say that was my bathrooms and heat control. Yeah. I, um, I always go wearing the very least that I possibly can wear there, too. <laughs> it's like... Uh, anyway, yep. go on. Yep. So, yeah, but th- that, you know, the logistics of heat dispersal aside, I personally am not a fan of that. Because, I don't know, maybe I have just kind of a visceral response to it from all my years of doing video game conventions where that stuff is par for the course and, and you know, booths get into dueling wars. Okay, we're going to be so loud. Well, then next year we have to be louder than them and then we have to be louder and more showy than them. I would hate to see the board game industry start to do that. Um, but if Asmodee, I mean, with what Asmodee did this year, I kind of feel like, well, Queen Games, well, crap, now we got to have a Jumbotron. And we got to draw eyes away from Asmodee because Asmodee took over two-thirds of all one or whatever it was. And they just, you know, grabbed all the eyeballs with all their big flashy stuff. And I don't want to be, you know, old grumpy man on the porch saying, get off my lawn in my day. Essen was pure and innocent and it wasn't, you know, all, I don't want to be that guy. But I personally, I don't know, maybe just because, uh, again, I just have kind of a very visceral, visceral negative reaction to it. I'd really hate to see the industry push in that direction. Um, but I do wonder if the other publishers think that they have to meet the challenge that Asmodee threw down this year. And I'm not excited about that. What are some of the best moments you had with people at the fair? Like chatting with a designer, demoing a game, talking with a fan. What do you got, Honey Pie? Oh, I, I had a, a lot of really great moments. Just people are so nice and they come and we just chat and they tell me about their lives and um, what they're playing. And I, yeah, it's catching up from year to year because lots of people come back and see me year after year. And it's just, it's, it's an, a connected, um, it's a small world, very connected. So I think I just really enjoy, plus I work by myself 95% of the year. So it's just nice to get... Um, you know, feedback in person and stuff. Um, so I would, I would say, yeah. I mean, I can't tell you. You can't think of a single specific one. Well, I would Pacific. I wouldn't feel comfortable broadcasting that uh, over the internet. Fair enough. Yeah, no, but just lots of really lovely interactions. I see. Yeah, I mean, the same is true for me. I mean, because that's the only good time I have is when I do sit down and talk to people that I know, um, and. I could I could mention names like Jen, but then I'd feel really bad because I would I would neglect to mention somebody. And I no, I enjoyed meeting you just as much. I just forgot about it in that one, and I didn't prepare and make a thorough and um, you know completely fleshed out list. Um, but yeah, no, I, I had some very good conversations. I will say, it wasn't this year. It was the previous year. Probably my best moment at Essen ever was not is here in 2017, but last year in 2016, when I met up with Travis Chance, then of um, Indie Board and Cards and Action Phase Game. But this year he started, I, re- I met Travis this year again, and I told him, uh, man, this is nowhere near as cool as last year because I had the best Essen moment with you ever. So in 2016, Alicia, when I met up with Travis, he took me, honey, we, you've never seen it. There's this place. Okay, you know um, the I forget the you know the main long hall where there's where the the spiral potato place is, yeah. and there's the bouncy councils and stuff like that. Yep. And at the far end, there's um, like some food truck type stuff. Yeah. If you go past that, there's a door, and you can go outside, and uh, then you're out in like a forest, 
And if you go down some steps, you go deeper and deeper and deeper into this forest, and there's lawn chairs all over the place. Oh, wow. And almost nobody knows about this because they're all empty. Yeah. And Travis knew about it, and he took me there last year. And we sat down there in the sun, and I took my shoes and my socks off, and we just <laughs> chatted for an hour and caught up. You were like and that was going. awesome. That was the best thing ever. This year we met in a little room in somebody's booth like normal, and it was fine. It was good to see him again and all that, but it was nowhere near as good as that best moment of Essen ever, <laughs> which unfortunately has absolutely nothing to do with Essen. <laughs> but it was an example getting of getting away, away from it. Oh. Right, okay. So moving on to Julian, who um, has heard me mention on several occasions that card and dice drafting is one of Jen's and my favorite mechanisms, if not the favorite of all time. He, uh, Julian also enjoys this. Um, but he feels that this type of game often leads to being mean to other players, since the best move is sometimes to prevent your opponent from taking the ideal card dice that they've been dreaming about for 10 rounds. Uh, since you and Jen often describe yourself as Care Bears, how do you manage to play such a drafting game? Uh, do you take the best card dice for your strategy without looking at what would hurt your opponent? I'm interested to hear your opinion. Uh, I play mostly with my wife, and she hates losing. We tend to play co-op and multiplayer solitaires to avoid direct confrontation. Okay. Well, that's a good question. What you're talking about, Julian, is colloquially known. How do you say that? Colloquially. Colloquially known as hate drafting. And yeah, it's, it's pretty hateful behavior. Um, and yeah, drafting brings out. And yeah, Jen and I will hate draft against each other. And that may seem aw- at, at odds with our general live and let live care bear attitude. But here's the thing. The main thing Jen and I don't want to do, the main element of meanness that we could lay the smack down on each other is destroying something that the other player has already built. Denying um, our opponent something that they may never have had. You know, and uh, what is, it, what is, it, is that an opportunity cost? Not, or you know, lost opportunity? Lo- as opposed to destroying it. something that's already been achieved doesn't feel as mean to me and Jen. It's the same reason we can enjoy, um, what do you call it? Um... Can't think of the word. Uh, auction games, where yeah, you know, what, honey, I can't let you have that for two. If you bid two on that, you know I'm going to raise you. I'm just letting you know that right now. That's interesting. That's an example of how we will often play auction games. You know, which no, um, you know, competitive player in their right mind would ever do to give that kind of information away. Um, you know, oh, you bid too low. Okay, fine. Yeah, now I'll get it for four, and ah, I got it. And where I'll say, honey, I know how much you want that. Please don't put me in a situation where I have to deny it to you. Bid for it appropriately. Come on. Yeah, yeah. You know you can't get it for that price. Don't try to get away with it. I'm just, I'm just telling you. So we, kinda, we go into drafting games with that kind of same attitude in place. Jen knows when she hands me the remaining cards in Seven Wonders or Notre Dame or something like that. She knows full well she's, she might as well be setting it on fire. Um, you know... Because she knows that I'm a good player, and she knows, um, you know, she has some small glimmer because maybe there's something in that hand that's more valuable than me than stopping her from getting what she wants. But she kind of gives it away, and the same is true when I hand her the cards, knowing full well that, well, I'll, yeah, I, I'm not getting this back, am I? You know, and when Jen gets cards today, yeah, I'm not giving you this. <laughs> and, and I say, yeah, yeah I know you're not no giving way me you're that. Getting that back. So, yeah, it's, 
it's it, it for some reason it doesn't push us over the top. Although it's interesting, a few months ago we did a run through for a drafting game that did. It was Pioneer Days from Tasty Minstrel, where that was an example of a game which was a brilliant game, absolutely phenomenal. But the hate drafting was too strong in that one. Um, and you know that you know because a lot of people ask me, why I did that run through. Well, why do you have a problem with this, but you don't have a problem with Seven Wonders? Pioneer Days. Each round, each player is only going to get to do one thing. Um, most drafting games, out of the hand of cards or the collection of dice or whatever, there's going to be several opportunities to take something. And hey, maybe I didn't get that ideal thing I want, but chances are I'm going to get some other stuff I want. In Pioneer Days, you're only going to get one thing every round. And it could be you end up with something that's like, ugh, ugh, this is terrible because you hate drafted the thing I needed the most knowing that there was nothing else even remotely useful for me. And then on top of that, it also has this other thing of after the drafting is over, one thing is left over. And um, that thing, might you know, the, the die that's left over that nobody took will hurt all players, but not equally. It might hurt Jen more than me. And so in that game, not only do I consider, hey, what can I take to keep away from Jen? But now I can put her in a situation where her only choices are something that is useless to her or something that actively hurts her and leaves me alone. And that was an example of a drafting game that was just too much. I mean, that thing was just doused in gasoline and set on the fires of hate drafting. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I mention all that just to contrast and compare with the hate drafting that we will will regularly do in Seven Wonders or, um, you know, or another game. And it just doesn't feel that bad because, you know, and actually somebody asked me about this with Twa, which is not a draft, not a traditional drafting game, but it's the same kind of thing. A lot of people think of Twa as in this incredibly mean, nasty, cutthroat game because, hey, I've got my dice and I roll them and oh my gosh, these are the perfect dice for me. But then somebody else pays me money and takes those dice. Here's the thing. In a drafting game, like in Twa, neither Jen nor I feel like these are our cards or these are our dice, or these are our tiles. It doesn't feel like they're being taken from us because we never had them in the first place. Um, And that's a very different thing than taking something from me that I do have, something that I've installed in my facility, something that is the cornerstone of my engine, or whatever it might be. So taking something that doesn't really belong to somebody but is just preventing them from getting in the future, it just doesn't feel as bad to us. And that's why it's okay for us, up to a point. All right, finally, last game-related question. Or, let's see, was that it for Julian? Yes, it was. Last game-related question from Genesis. All right. All right, Genesis wonders. Not too long ago, I was raving about Runebound. How great it was. How I've spent ages collecting expansions. I didn't get everything, but I got probably two-thirds of everything that was out there, including the super ultra-rare stuff, like Runebound Midnight and all that. Um, how I had so much content to explore, it would take a years, a lifetime, and I was looking forward to doing it. And then I got rid of it! And now I'm saying, why would we ever want to play anything but Gloomhaven? Um, do I regret any unfulfilled potential and enjoyment that I could have had from games like that? Do I ever regret getting rid of games? What top three would spring to mind if so? Runebound was a unique one. The only reason I got rid of Runebound is because I just assumed, foolishly, with the benefit of hindsight, that Runebound 3rd Edition would be an improvement. It would be everything we love about Runebound and be even better. 
And if you watched my run-through for Runebound 3rd Edition, you found I was very... I got rid of all my Runebound stuff because I have limited shelf space. I was, it was amazing. I could fit, pack everything into the Runebound box. But if I wanted to get Runebound 3rd Edition and I assumed I'd like it better, I had to make room so it just made sense to get rid of Runebound 2nd Edition and replace it with Runebound 3rd Edition. And then we found out we found Runebound 3rd Edition to be significantly... I wouldn't say weaker. It's a strong design, but it's a design less enjoyable for us. And by then, all my Runebound 2nd Edition stuff was gone. Gone in the wind, and I was full of the regret. It is true. Fortunately, the, um, the, I think it was the third expansion for Runebound 3rd Edition, the co-op one. I can't remember the name of it. I've done a run-through for it. Turned that around, and now we're happy to have Runebound 3rd Edition. But I, am, I do regret losing all that stuff for 2nd Edition. I don't know if I have any others. That's a really very unique example, a very unique circumstance. Let's see. Let's go to gone.rado.com, where you can find a list of every game I have ever gotten rid of and why. Let's see here. Let me just do a quick scan. Also, I also did a top 10 games I regret getting rid of. You could go watch that run through as well. Although that was full of games I regret getting rid of because I knew they were great, but Jen and I would never enjoy them because they're too mean-spirited or because they don't work well with two, that kind of stuff. So I don't really regret. I regret more that we're just not in a situation we could enjoy those games. Are there any games here I really... I'm sad about getting rid of Arkham Horror, the card game. That's a really great game. Um, I still think I made the right choice. Because I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of getting a bajillion expansions for it. Um, and, you know, just the game by itself doesn't stand alone. It's a game that is voracious. You have to keep putting more and more money into it. But, man, it was really good. I really did like it. What else do I regret on this list? Do I regret getting Race for the Galaxy? No, I don't think so. Roll for the Galaxy is so much better for us. And let's see here. Nothing else is jumping out at me. Nope, nope, nope. Maybe Goa? Nah, the more we played it, the more we just weren't crazy about the two-player. Um, maybe... Nope, 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 nope. I don't think so. I think that Runebound was a pretty unique circumstance. And I'm pretty satisfied with the decisions I made for everything else. Although, I mean, gosh, how long is this list? This list is 540 games long. So I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis. I'm not going to go look through all 540 of these games that I've gotten rid of um, to see if there are any. But yeah, maybe there's probably a few here and there. But I can, we only have so much room. So, you know, got to keep moving forward. No reason to live in the past. No regrets is what I say. And that's it, folks. We're done with the gaming-related questions. And folks, if you don't care about Jen's in my personal life, bail evacuate, escape, get out now, and um, come back next month. If you have any questions, as always, questions are raw.com. But otherwise, thanks for listening. Have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later so long. Bye-bye. Okay, you're still here? Then hold on for a sec. We'll be right back. Except I can't find the remote. Here it is. Okay, everybody, time for a walk down personal lane. Let's get going, honey pie. Yeah. Adrian is back and wants to know, how do we pronounce Schwaney and what does it mean? <laughs> 
So what, I assume that means Adrian must have been on, uh, must have been a backer, and we must have sent her, or him, I suppose. But I'm going to assume her some rewards, and so she must have gotten the thing uh. in the mail, and it's our address. We live on Schwaney Road, yeah, um, which is at Schwaney Bay, and in fact, our apartment building is Schwaney Flats. So, what does Schwaney mean? For those who can't see it, it's spelled X W E J N I. In Maltese, like I believe Arabic, X sounds like sh, so it's Schwaney, and the J is effectively silent. I'm sure it's not silent. I'm sure we just can't pronounce it, um, so we just call it Schwaney Road, and. Apparently, Schwaney is a, uh, a, it's derived from another, I think a Turkish word called Schwaney or Zini or something like that. Uh, a Turkish word for a particular type of galleon, uh, a, a type of warship. And the reason ours is called Schwaney Bay is because, I mean, th- this is the farthest north bay in all of Malta. And it's where the Turkish ships would, um, you know, drop anchor and launch their invasions into Malta. And so the locals knew it. Oh, yep, that's, that's where all the Turkish galleons come and attack us. That's Schwaney Bay. So, um, yeah, we, we live in a, uh, in, a, in a location known for death and destruction, apparently. Mm. Um, and that's where Schwaney comes from. All righty. Next up. All right. Um, Let's see, Daniel wants to know, let's see, well, Daniel's a stay-at-home dad uh, who just sent kids to school full-time. Congratulations, Daniel, uh, for getting some time off. And now, with that free time, first time in years, he's a graphic designer by trade, and he has an idea for an Etsy shop uh, and other ideas uh, to pursue some part-time work. And this is a question of both of us. What advice do we give to someone who is setting out for a new chapter in their lives, where to start? And then also, specifically to Jen, any advice on starting an Etsy site and marketing yourself? Don't worry, I'm not a glass artist. Just a uh, like-minded, creative person. Gosh, that is huge. Huge! It's all, it's all huge. Actually, I think Etsy does a really, really good job of doing a lot of... Um, vendor education if you will so once you get signed up i especially in this last month they have sent me probably 10 emails with new features on how they're helping vendors to um get more sales get their stuff categorized better so people can find what what they're selling and that sort of thing so i think with etsy in particular there is a really strong support network there and so if you just get going if you just get started Get, dip your toe and just constantly improve. That's probably the best way to get going because otherwise it's completely overwhelming. If you try and figure out, oh, the absolute best way to to do everything, because um, they're they're constantly changing things and improving things anyway. So I think just get something on there and then work on it a little bit, maybe every day even, improving it with the search engines, with Etsy's search engine. With Google Ads, with, um, yeah, I don't know. There's just tons of stuff to do. So, But you're saying Etsy, there, there's a section, once you've made an Etsy account, where you can say, here's our top 10 tips and stuff like that. Well, actually, I don't even think you have to have an Etsy account. You can just go in there and read. Um, there's just tons of support mm. material mm. in there. If you've got a question about you know how to promote yourself or whatever, there's 
there's forum groups and there's also you know Etsy sponsored articles that tell you how they think it's best to do it. So I've been really impressed with Etsy. I think that they are pretty together as a company. Yeah. Years ago, you actually just tried to start your own online retail store. You made a website for it yeah. and set up the the secure payment methods and all of that. Yeah. And then it just promptly went nowhere. I mean, you just you got very little traction on it. Yep. Um, and then it was, and Etsy existed at the time, right? Yeah, I think it did. But it was, I mean, this was like ten years ago. Yeah. Or, but you decide, oh, I'm not going to use Etsy because they're going to take X percent of whatever. I'll do it myself. Well, actually, and then eBay. you, but you now appreciate that yeah, Etsy probably earns that X percent oh, they take yeah, of I every think sale. They do. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, actually, a lot of the sales that come off of my Etsy site are direct referral from Jennifer.net. So mm-hmm. whether they're, but, but they make all the backend stuff invisible to me, which I greatly appreciate. I mm-hmm. really do not need to be worrying about if stuff's working right behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I just want to put my stuff up there and let people look at it mm-hmm. and hopefully buy it if they like it. So, um, no, I think Etsy is absolutely great. As far as selling a graphic design service on Etsy... I, well, no, I assume it mean I, I assume he means he's got an idea for some. He's a graphic designer, and he's got some idea uh, for some kind of T-shirt or mural or, or something. something yeah. 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 Oh, I, well, I, there's certainly a lot of people that shop on Etsy, so I think that's a really good place to. Yeah, get and they browse. Out. They, you know, just, well, let's let's. You know, they treat it like a store, and they just browse the aisles and. Yep. Let their clicking lead. So yeah, again, if you follow all their tips and tricks to draw more eyeballs and get better, more thorough search results and stuff like that. Yep. So that's, there you go, Daniel, that's where you start. You start by making an Etsy account um, and then seeing what you got. And do you have anything to add for starting a new chapter in your life, Honey Pie? Oh. Um, just do it. Yeah, I, baby steps. Just, you know, you got to just get started, as in anything. You mm-hmm. just got to... Figure out the most important thing and work on that. Sounds good. David wonders, what are our opinions on Star Trek Discovery? He watched the first episode and wasn't impressed enough to pay for the privilege of watching the rest. (laughs) Because you don't know, but in America, Uh the very first episode aired on broadcast TV on, you know, whatever night it is, Monday night. And Mm. so it had a huge... But then in America, we live in Europe, so we get to watch it effectively for free on Netflix. Because outside of the continental U.S., it's available on Netflix. Mm. So everybody who has Netflix is effectively getting it for free. But in the U.S., you instead have to pay, I don't know what it is, eight bucks a month, something like that, to subscribe to CBS's streaming video service, Uh, video on demand service. uh Um, And so a lot of people, a lot of Americans are like, ah, I'm not going to do that just for one show. I guess you can look, you could go back and watch every episode of Person of Interest. Or, you know, 60 minutes or whatever. But for most people, it's just not worth it. So, Honey Pie, what are your opinions on Star Trek Discovery? Uh, I am really tired of listening to Klingon. <laughs> I just, it's just not a pretty language, and I find it irritating. Mm-hmm. But I think that getting the backstory filled in is, is really interesting. But also, it's a culture that doesn't share my values, and so I have a really hard time being interested in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part I, I can't say that I'm really enjoying, but I think, um, some of the other stuff that they're doing is really cool. I think, um, the way that they move discovery, discover, discovery, discovery around is, ah, I love that. I love how it kind of drops and bounces. That is so (laughs) cool. 
Um, and I like that our, our hero is a flawed character a bit, that she's had some things going on. She's a little bit too perfect at the moment. I'm looking forward to seeing a bit more cracks in her armor as she becomes a little less Vulcan-like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I like um, Mr. Malfoy as the captain. <laughs> yep. Lucius Malfoy. He's yep. pretty nice as the captain. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have anything else you want to... I like it a lot. I think it's phenomenal. I think it's fantastic. I think it's uh, you know it's it's the best of Trek. Um, you know I love obviously the high production values. It's a long time, lifelong. Ever since I was a little kid, watching Trek in the early seventies. Um, not quite old enough to have watched it live in original airings on CBS, but in syndication. Um, you know to, to see you know such a high level of polish and presentation and and a much more modern sensibility to storytelling as well. Um, you know, less episodic, more, you know, you know, big overarching meta narratives that are driving the action. Uh, characters who actually do grow and change um, in significant ways and aren't just static and re- reset themselves at the end. Of, you know, so all that stuff is fantastic. Of course, to be fair, uh, that was one of the best things about uh, Star Trek Enterprise that they were, you know, doing a bit more of that, particularly in the the wonderful third season, but. Um, you know, all that aside, I know it's interesting. A lot of people, and you know, certainly at the uh, where David's at, you know, he hasn't seen very much of it. Were really ticked off by it because it, it's a much darker tone to the series. I mean, it's physically darker. The, you know, walking around on Discovery, it's the darkest ship that there ever been. Although there is a reason for that in the storyline, and I guess we'll try to avoid spoilers. Yeah. Um, but. I, I liked it. I mean, you know, the lead character, for once, the lead character is not the captain. The lead character is this other character. And, you know, the captain is, you know, a, an important, but it, the whole show doesn't revolve around that captain. But a lot of people are like, this isn't Trek. This isn't Trek because this is an evil ship full of duplicit people on a, on a mission that has nothing to do with the very founding and, you know, the, the principles of Starfleet and the Federation and all that. And I'm like... Have you not been watching Trek for the last 30 or 40 years? Have, have you ever not heard of Section 31? Um, you know, or, I mean, how many times does there have to be the rogue Starfleet captain of the week who decides to, um, you know, to completely ignore the prime directive and just do what needs to get done? The thing I love more than anything else about um, Discovery is this is a show set on one of those ships. And that's why I thought it was so important for the first two episodes. The first two episodes were kind of set on a regular Starfleet vessel with a crew, with an incredibly brave, wise, and noble captain who can do no wrong and who will, you know, who will die to protect those, um, you know, those cherished principles of Starfleet. Um, you know, and, you know, it could stand side by side with Picard or Janeway or, or Kirk or um, Archer. Or what have you. And, you know, so that was kind of setting up traditional Trek vibe, traditional Trek um, interpersonal stuff. And then, boom, it all gets thrown out of the window and we get thrown onto Discovery, which is unlike any other Trek ship that's ever ha- been the focus of a show. But we have seen many Starfleet vessels that are like this. They are always just vessels of the week that are problems to solve. And now we get to see the other side. We get to live in it. We get to breathe in it. It's during the Klingon War when the ends 
justify the means. These are themes that Trek has dealt with many, many, many times, but now it's the entire thrust of the show, and I think it's fantastic um, you know, that it's at once familiar, but also new and exciting. So I'm blown away by it, and I, am, I do feel bad for people in America who can't just watch it on Netflix. Although what I would strongly recommend you do, hey, the first season is over, so just sign up for one month of CBS All Access, watch it over the space of a week, and then cancel your subscription. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, that, that's what a lot of people do. That's what um, a lot of people do for HBO. So, oh, okay, season of Game of Thrones is over now. Okay, let's just sign up for a month of HBO Go. Boom, we're done. Okay, now I'll, I'm done with it, and we'll come back again. I don't really know how um, they can make money off of this. I, I guess they do it off of the, the, uh, the, 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 the Blu-ray, you know. But I don't know, people, do people still buy Blu-rays? Do people do that? I mean, you stream everything these days. I don't know. But, um, yeah, for us, it's been absolutely phenomenal. And quite frankly, if I were in America, I think I would have been getting my money's worth as a lifelong diehard Star Trek fan who was thirsting for anything Trek-related and was very pleased and excited to see something really fresh and new and fun. Um, and I, I can't wait for more. Okay. So, sorry for any spoilers in there. You think we need to put spoilers yeah, okay, I guess so. And, right, okay, next question. Another Star Trek question from David, who wants to know, have we seen the web series Star Trek Continues, and if so, what are our opinions? I have watched every episode of Star Trek Continues. Jen has mocked me um, when she's walked by what? and seen me watching one and said, what the heck is that? Is that original Trek? Those, I mean, that's not Kirk. And like, yeah, I mean, I, I think Star Trek Continues is amazing. Uh, it's such an incredible labor of love. I have not watched the final episode. I've got it uh, in queued up, ready to watch. I just haven't watched it yet because I don't want it to be over. Um, but for folks who don't know, Star Trek Continues is one of many, many fan shows that you can watch on YouTube. But it is by far the highest quality one. Um, it's just a bunch of independent, you know, diehard Trek fans with some digital cameras who have basically recreated all the sets of the original Enterprise, the costumes, and, you know, they basically are doing fan fiction. And what they've done is they've now... The original Enterprise, Star Trek, was supposed to be a five-year mission, and they only ever got three years. So they have now done years four, and they just finished with year five. I haven't watched the final episode yet. And so I, I love the passion. I love, uh, you know, I, I love the enthusiasm, and I, I've enjoyed watching them. I, it's weird, though. The interesting thing about the show is that they always kind of put themselves trying to bridge the Star Trek of the original series and Star Trek The Next Gen. And, you know, Next Gen with its much more thoughtful, cerebral, passionless approach to science fiction. Diplomatic. Diplomatic approach. You know, there's um, not very much cowboy diplomacy in Star Trek The Next Generation, whereas that's what Star Trek The Original Series is all about. Um, you know, the fact that in Star Trek The Next Generation, what's the first thing you see? Hey, let's put a ship's counselor on the bridge as the third most important thing, just to prove just how much we are in touch with our feelings and how we will talk through everything. If you compare and contrast any um, conference room scene from the original series with a next gen, I mean, the, the overall tone and uh, you know, the drama, the passion, the feel, the undercurrents, the conflict, I mean, you know, it, it's just so sedate. 
by comparison to what original Trek was. And it's interesting then because Star Trek continues, the, one of the first things they do is let's introduce, hey, I'm the first, I'm, I'm a new, we're in an experiment having a ship's counselor on board because they're trying to bridge the gap, trying to show uh, an evolution of the attitudes of Starfleet. And I love that in theory. Now, what I don't love is it's, ta- it's, it's, it's this slow stripping out of what I love most about Trek the, um, you know, and you know, making it just a little bit more flat. Um, you know, and I know this is sacrilege because most Trek fans today grew up on Next Gen. They didn't grow up uh, like me. They aren't as old as, and tired and gray as me. Um, and for them, Picard defines what Star Trek is supposed to be. And getting back to the last question, that's why they say, Discovery isn't anything like what Trek is. And I'm like, yes, it is. Uh, you just have to pay attention to what Tre- you know, the true origin of what Trek is all about. So Trek Continues is neat in that it does an evolution, and therefore the episodes of Trek... Are, of Trek Continues are a little bit more navel-gazing than I would like. Um, you know, just a bit more slow and sedate in their pacing because they're working their way towards the next-gen feel. So I appreciate it. I respect it. I think it was a reasonable choice. I just hate to see the life, literally, episode by episode, bleeding out of what makes Trek so special and wonderful for me as a long-term fan of the original series above pretty much everything else. Um, but I, I think it's amazing, and I'm glad they've done it. And if I ever got to meet them, I would give them all hugs because they've given me a lot of Trek loveliness. Um, so, and oh my God, Honey Pie, the next question from Andrew. Yeah. Uh, having grown up as a dedicated Doctor Who fan, oh. he's as old as me, born the same year as me, yeah. I'm used to shows which massively change character, both literally and more generally, often, and yet have a strong core that makes them undeniably the same show. He was listening. These must have all come because we must have talked about Trek in a recent episode, I guess. Yeah. I was listening to you in episode 30, how much you enjoy, how much we're enjoying Discovery. Um, and uh, as we have enjoyed all variations on Trek. So the question, what do you and or Jen think are the necessary elements for something to be defined as Trek? And conversely, what would make something not Trek? Do you have nothing to say about that? Uh, I think I'd have to sit around and think about that a long time, and I have not spent any time at all <laughs> in my life thinking about that, but I'm sure that you can answer it. All right. Um, Jen's done talking about Trek, everybody. You pushed her to the Trek edge. All righty. So, because Jen actually is on a secret mission. Are you still on your mission, or no. are you prepared? No, I'm prepared. I actually told Jen what, what her the last question was going to be. <laughs> um, I never do that, but she wanted to be prepared for the last one. Anyway, so... What defines Trek more than anything else? Of course, uh, besides the obvious stuff of, well, it should be set in the future, in the time of the Federation and all of that, and nacelles and warp and transport and the technology, and, and you know, obviously the setting is, is a given. Um, although, I'm, you know, you could, you've got centuries to play with there, so that's all cool and well. But what really makes Trek more, um, Trek more than anything else is its steadfast devotion to exploring the human condition through science fiction. And if they do that, it's Trek. Um, that plus the trappings of the setting are what makes it Trek. And I think Discovery does that in spades. I think the new Treks, um, you know, the Abrams Treks, do that 
in spades. Um, and, you know, so I, I think, I, yeah, I mean, that, that's it. That's what, and, you know, to not be Trek is to, is to, is to abandon that, is to do maybe, to be something more like Star Wars. Um, you know, and that's not to say Star Wars doesn't, Star Wars doesn't comment on the human condition. Star Wars just creates drama out of the human condition and the great mythic hero's journey and all of that. That's what Star Wars sets out to do, and it does it very well. But Star Wars doesn't really have a lot in the way of societal uh, commentary. I mean, like um, Star Trek Into Darkness, I thought was a brilliant Epi- uh, it, you know, a brilliant continuation of the core precepts of Trek because it casts, sorry, I think it's been long enough, um, Khan Noonien Singh in the role of Osama bin Laden and tries to make him a sympathetic character. And that's amazing. That's something, what, uh, what I, mean, I mean, I guess maybe Battlestar Galactica, you know, the Battlestar Galactica reboot did that somewhat uh, to a certain extent, but that wasn't really Galactica's thing. You know, Galactica, you know, has parallels to real world issues and symbolism, but Trek is all about that. Using science fiction as a lens to, um, you know, evaluate modern society. That's what it's always done, and that's when it's at its best. And um, so I think New Trek does that. Even um, the, the third Trek film, um, you know, did that because, I mean, heck, the, the whole undercurrent was about. Um, you know, uh, you know, what, what is the use of a military in a society that doesn't need it anymore? I mean, and, and, and how, how, how to, you know, how, how to put people out to pasture and give them new meaning in life? I mean, those are issues that are, you know, first and, you know, are, are hugely in the forefront of modern society. Discovery is all about ends justifying the needs. You know, the, the, I don't want to go into spoilers too terribly much because I guess there's people who haven't watched it because they're in America and they don't want to pay whatever it is, the 10 bucks to watch it. But it's totally worth it. You would pay 10 bucks to go to the movies? Pay 10 bucks to watch the season. But, you know, one of the core principal things, because it's set during the, the Federation Klingon War, which was never really explored much, they just kind of mentioned it in the past, was... Um, you know, uh, ends justifying the means. How far will we go? And there, there are some very specific things that happen in that show that are very, very. I mean, they're dark. There's just no two ways about it. But um, you know, and, and the characters have to come to terms with how they feel about that, and how do they feel about themselves, and what does that make them to be complicit in these things? Um, you know, and, and um, you know, characters who aren't simple. Um, you know, just sheer shining paragons of good, but are you know are complex and flawed and stuff like that. These are the things that make Trek Trek for me. Um, and it would be the jettisoning of those that would suddenly make it not Trek. And fortunately, that hasn't happened. So I, I think that's great. And that's why I'm really enjoying Discovery so much. All righty. Do you have anything you want to add to all that, Honey Pie? Uh, I would like to say that the thing that I like best about Trek is that it shows humanity in the future in a positive light. Mm -hmm. That we have overcome all of our niggly, pissy, crappy, I want to say the S word, (laughs) um, inclinations and have pulled together and made it as a species in a more holistic, um, supportive way. Mm -hmm. Where everybody's, you know, appreciated and... See, but that's the thing. That is the single biggest complaint about Star Trek Discovery. 
This isn't Trek because they're not doing that. They are not portraying the future of humanity as that shining city on the hill of unswavering paragons of virtue and always doing the right thing at all times because that's not what Discovery is about. No. Discovery is about what it takes to support that ideal. Yeah, what it ideal. takes to get to that point. Yeah. yeah. Which is not being at war, obviously. <laughs> yep. Being at war means a lot of crappy stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And... Nobody likes that. But uh, that's what I'm saying. That's why I watched Star Trek is because I think if we as a species put this in our our minds that this is where we're trying to get to and everybody's visualizing the same kind of future where people are appreciated and and do things that they love for the reasons that they love rather than just say, you know, it pays the most Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I I just think that's wonderful. And and hopefully having that in our common experience, um, psyches, will do us good in the long run. Yeah. Jeffrey has no Star Trek related questions. Oh man! Um, he instead uh, wants to talk about Crunch because he apparently recently read the book Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, the triumphant, turbulent story behind how video games are made, um, which is uh, basically a book about crunch periods, taking readers through the development of twelve games, all of which feature periods up to months, maybe even a year, while developers are working hundred plus hours a week to get a game out the door. The toll of such work leads Jason, the author of the book, to conclude that the video game industry is not sustainable in its current form. Uh, um, And so Jeffrey wonders, shouldn't 100-plus hour work weeks be avoidable? Uh, Does the industry suffer from lack of good managers, or is this driven by unhealthy publisher-developed relations? Richard and Jen, do you have crunch stories you'd like to share? And are there any parallels Mm. to the board game industry? Well, that's definitely more of a question for you. <laughs> you have nothing to say as a crunch widow, mm-hmm. as a video game widow? I think that term says it all. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, crunch comes about for a number of reasons. You certainly hit on certain ones. I have not read this book, but uh, yeah, certainly there is no doubt there is mismanagement. But I think there's more maybe mismanagement of expectations. Uh, the fundamental problem with the video game industry as it exists right now is, uh, you know, the, I would always draw parallels to the, uh, the movie industry. And the video game industry is like every single time you start to make a new project, you know, instead of starting a new movie, you start to make a new AAA console video game, you have to reinvent the camera. Not, not, you know, the technology of how a camera works. You have to reinvent the language of cinema. You have to reinvent, um, you know, the entire business infrastructure that makes it all go. Every single time you have to reinvent everything from scratch because the video game industry is still in its, um, you know, is still in early days. It's only been going for, what, since the 70s? So, you know, not even half a century. We're not even at half a century to the video game industry. And it's still trying to get its best practices into place. And um, I think, again, I don't know what Jason, the author, means by being not sustainable. But I think the reality is, as time goes forward and technology solidifies and um, you know, companies stop trying to write their own game engines and just license standard stuff, and the, 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 the closer we get to let's take this back to Star Trek. The closest we, the closer we get to the holodeck future, where um, you know the hard work is not in 
you know, um, pushing ones and zeros to be able to squeeze the most out of our hardware so we can get more polygons on screen and more cool tech. The sooner we get away from that um, to where the true hard work comes from, um, you know, crafting, compelling, uh, you know, and engaging, you know, the, 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 for the most part, the hard work in Hollywood is the writing and the acting. It's not the technology. They've pretty much cracked how cameras work. And that's not where all the pain and hardship comes from. And um, I'm sure that was not the case right from the get-go. And actually, to be fair, in Hollywood, there are plenty of effects houses that have just as bad a crunch as any video game developer, where in the mad rush to get the film ready in time for its Christmas launch or its summer launch or whatever it is, you've got dozens or if not hundreds of computer graphic artists slaving away for hundreds of hours, 100 plus hour weeks for weeks or months at a time to hit that deadline. That is not unique to the video game industry. That happens in the movie industry all the time. Any place where we're still trying to wrangle technology. There will come a time, and it'll probably be in our lifetimes, because of Moore's Law, where those technological hurdles have been completely eliminated. Um, and yeah, there'll still be breakthroughs to be had from the technological front, but you know what? Anybody with a dream and a little bit of moxie and some elbow grease could make something that competes with the highest AAA produced game there is. That will come. Um, and at that point, it won't be so much of an issue. I don't think crunch, I think crunch will still exist, but crunch doesn't solely exist because it's hard to make games and there are hard deadlines and there are breakdowns of communication and stuff like that. Crunch in the video game industry exists more as much as anything else, maybe more than anything else, just due to raw, unbridled passion. Because it is full of people who are willing to do it, who have that level of a passion and enthusiasm and want it to be the best it can be. And if you have an entire industry full to the brim of people who feel that way with an entire... Uh, a, a population of people a hundred times, for every one person who has a job in the game industry, there are 99 people just as passionate, just as smart, who will step in and take that job if that one person goes away. That's the true crux of what creates crunch because um, of just this raw, unbridled passion. If the entire industry as a whole, and, and but not just that, but every single person who wants to work in the industry would agree to say, yeah, you know what, I love video games, but not enough to kill myself and not enough to ruin my relationships with all my loved ones. If everybody were to step back and say, yeah, that's not acceptable, the industry would change overnight. But the industry has no reason to change because... Everybody has that level of passion. And so the industry can exploit that passion as a resource. That's basically what it is. I mean, I will never forget the time that I had to go to my um, group of, let's see, at the time, there were, I had three um, junior or mid-level designers working directly for me. And I said, guys, um, I'm going to do this myself. For the next year, we're all working six-day weeks. Um, you know, and I'm not asking. I'm telling. This is what we got to do. And in part, it was because we had a hard deadline. And strictly speaking, we did not have to do that. I did not have to put that on them. But I had ambitions for what I wanted that game to be. And the thing is, I could ask them of that knowing that they shared those ambitions with me. And they wanted it just as bad. And they were willing to do it. And that's why 
me and Justin and Quentin and Joe, and over time, everybody else as well, but you know, the four of us as a vanguard, basically for a year, worked six days a week, uh, 10 to 12 hours a day, every day. Um, and I mean, and I pushed myself harder than any of them. That was when I was at Edge, and uh, that's when I made my record. During that year, at one point, I did not leave the building for four days straight. And there were often, many, many times, I would spend the night, you know, sleeping on a couch um, just so I could be there in five or six hours and keep on working. And my boss never asked me to do that. I did that because it was my passion. It was my responsibility. I wanted the game to be as good as good. Now, all that said, I still had to make painful, gut-wrenching compromises and um, decisions every day to hit our targets. And no matter how hard I worked, I still had to compromise. And that's why, that gets back to what I was saying before, there's going to come a point where there will not be any more technological compromises. And it's only where um, you know, most of the artistry comes in a can, and it's just a question of how you want to use it. So that will, be, uh, that will signal a fundamental sea change, because I don't see the passion changing. Um, indie groups... There are plenty of little indie developers out there who have no reason in the world to work 100-plus hour um, because they've got, they've got no publisher. It's entirely on them, and they'll do it anyway because of that passion. Um, and if I were guessing, I would say the people working at your DreamWorks and your ILMs and your Weta workshops, that same passion is evident there where you often have people who have to work 100-hour weeks for months or even years at a time. And that's what it's a reflection of. It's, it's, it's a unique result of an industry that is 100% creatively driven. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, that's not true. Obviously, it's all about money at the end of the day. But it is a creative industry. And, but it's a creative industry where, the, where, again, it goes back to what I was saying, we have to keep reinventing the wheel. Every frame of animation has to be hand animated. We haven't gotten to the point, or, or motion captured or whatever, we have not gotten to the point where, again, that's why I talk about the holodeck future. Somebody coming up with a hollow no, uh, what they call, I think they call them hollow novels um, in Star Trek, they don't have to animate every frame of animation for when Sherlock Holmes or Moriarty runs around the corner and has an interaction with data on the Enterprise or something like that. They just have to say, right, here's what I want to happen. That's going to that's gonna happen. It, you know, video game development is going to shift over to something like that, um, where you have procedurally um, generated animations, where you have engines can, that can do anything, that there are no restrictions. The industry will change at that point. Um, so it doesn't need to be sustainable forever, because technology will continue, um, you know, and AI breakthroughs and all of that will continue to where it's just not a requirement anymore. That's my feeling. But in the meantime... Yeah, I got out. I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and finally, the last question, which to be fair was actually the first question, and I told Jen ahead of time, and so she has been prepared for it, came from Henrik, who wants to know um, if Jen would share her quote of the month, her words of wisdom. Honey pie, let's go out on it. What do you got for us? Okay. I think today's, or this month's, or whatever, um, quote is going to be, da 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 what screws us up most in life is the picture in our head of how it is supposed to be. Yeah. Yep. That's what I just talked about at great length, actually, uh, in my professional career. 
All right. Yep. Well, and I think, uh, especially for girls, you know, mm-hmm. the whole fairy tale princess mm. thing, you know, happily ever after, um, it just, it's, that's not how it is. And unfortunately, we're all sold a bit of a bill of goods. <laughs> so, yep. What screws us up most in life is the picture in our head of how it's supposed to be. So rather than appreciating how it is and what we've got, we are constantly striving towards something else that in theory is better, but it's probably unrealistic anyway. Yeah. And we never should have been trying. Okay, cool. That's it, folks. Another month, another podcast in the can. Woo! Woo! Okay, everybody say goodbye to Jen because she's leaving the day after tomorrow. And I'll be alone for three weeks, three long weeks. Um, But then she'll be back and it'll be happy days again. Yep. All right, everybody. Uh, Talk to you in a month. As always, questions to questions for Rob.com. Otherwise, hope you have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, Bye-bye. Oh, bye.